everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Joining me today is Dr. David Ince. He's a Barbados-born Canadian who lives in Calgary, an atheist and secularist with a strong interest in promoting critical thinking and scientific literacy, as well as helping to promote community and support for people of Caribbean origin and other minority groups who no longer subscribe to religion and living with the guidance of a god or supreme being. David is a specialist in renewable energy and sustainability. He has an energy policy consultancy practice and is a professor and researcher at the University of Calgary in the area of environmental management. His interest in sustainable development includes a particular emphasis on themes of equity and social justice, including speaking out against anti-black racism. David has written extensively on issues relating to atheism in the Afro-Caribbean community at his Carib Atheist blog. He's also been the co-host of the Free Thinking Island podcast that examines atheism and secularism in the Caribbean. David is also a musician who plays clarinet, piano, and saxophone. He's known especially for playing sax in reggae and sogo bands where he resides in Calgary. So welcome, Dr. David Ince. First of all, it's great to be back chatting with you again. As you mentioned, I'm from you know, Canada and Barbados. <laughs> And it's great to have the opportunity to interact with you because from my memory, that was back in 2012, the last time we met when I was doing the Free Thinking Island podcast. I mean, there's so much that we could talk about. There's so many directions that we can we can take this. I really like the idea of being able now to talk about some of my experience today as a Black Barbadian Canadian. I'm not even sure if in my bio actually specifically says that I'm Black, but I think most people... We'll know that, and um, and therefore how how that affects how I navigate the world, and maybe some others that navigate the world in a similar way to me, or maybe there's some differences. But I think we all have a unique story to tell, given that I've kind of been back and forth from different places, uh, living as I said, mainly Barbados in Canada, but also England and Ecuador. Uh, energy is my thing, sustainable energy, renewable energy has been in that. That's my work passion. Uh, I try to bring that into looking at everyday life, sustainability, bringing social, environmental, economic technology together. So to me, I see social areas, especially social justice, as a part of that. And I feel excited to be able to be at least in a field where I can make a difference. I'm looking forward to a nice informal chat that not just us, but everyone listening will be able to also identify or learn something or say, wow, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, I knew that long ago, David, but whichever way, you know. First of all, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to me because you are a busy guy. And I really like the fact that you have this well-traveled resume that allows you to experience how you're treated in different parts of the world as a black person so that you actually are not just isolated to the U.S. and you can compare that to other places where you have lived to where you live now. I think that that experience brings a lot to the table when it comes to interpreting what's going on in specific contexts because you can you have something to compare and to contrast. That's one of the things that I'm fortunate to have had. That also gives you some kind of a of an idea how things are in different places that you go. Even getting into the atheist secular world, the way that I kind of got into that is by traveling. Uh, my research was actually in the Caribbean. My research was done from the University of Calgary in Canada, but it was 
from different Caribbean countries. And when I went places, I would actually look for atheists in different countries. And, uh, and that was fascinating. And I would, we, we had a very small online atheist community then. And uh, I would try to find these one or two people and I made some good connections. And uh, that's how I really started blogging. And it was just great how different people had had so many different experiences. And it was so unique because I was in Canada where a lot of people who were, were atheists there, even if they grew up in the church, it was something they kind of took for granted. But these are people like, wow, I've never seen another atheist in my life, or at least not another atheist that's black. And so I just started to realize there was merit in looking at different places and being able to see the experiences of others and value those experiences. So even from that, and that's just not taken into consideration, as you said, other places that I have lived, like um, Canada and Florida and the U.S. I've been to the U.S. quite a bit. My sister actually lives in New York. Uh, I did go to Austin, where you live. Unfortunately, I didn't get to see you at that time. But I have a bit, somewhat of an idea of some of your experience. And, and I certainly know the kind of conversations that you get involved in and the pushback that you get. I mean, it's kind of wonderful, but also challenging and frustrating. We get to that as well, too, of having these experiences of being a minority or let's say maybe part of a marginalized community because sometimes as a marginalized person, you're not always in the minority, but there are a lot of experiences that you get from the fact that you are part of a group of people who are generally seen in the world as not the standard, you know, not what is maybe the standard to look up to, whether people consciously believe that or whether it's in your subconscious or in your psyche or the history. I feel quite comfortable and confident in saying that it is there in most of us that we see people in a certain way and color of skin does play a big role in that. I also noticed that you are in a unique community in that you are a black academic. So you have an experience of being in what is generally considered to be a privilege or a power position of having um, high levels of education and having a position that generally commands some level of social respect. It's interesting because when you're out and about in your daily life, people don't know that you're Dr. David Ince. Exactly. But when you're in your academic setting, people do know it, like your students know it, your peers know it. Uh, And so you have that experience of being a Black academic in predominantly white areas and also a Black academic in predominantly Black areas. That is a very interesting thing. And it is interesting in the fact that, I mean, let's look at in a predominantly white setting, where I'm in there in Calgary. What happens sometimes is that outside of the university or when I'm with peers or say when if I go with uh, a I'm going to specific groups, but let's say a secular group of skeptics in the pub or, you know, just get it together with people who don't know me other than that I am black. It's sometimes intriguing, but often if and when they know of my credentials, then there's a kind of like a difference that happens in the room in the sense that, it's like, oh, okay, so you are doctor, are you, are you do know this kind of thing. And they, give you a little bit of space, not always all the space, mind you, but it does kind of help when you give other things other than just what you look like. And I mean, I suppose some people will say, oh, that's 
that's a good thing because they do respect you for that. But then, you know, sometimes you, you find that a person who's white, however, comes in and sits at the table, especially a white male. And everybody doesn't know where what his background is or where he came from. or he, And he will just start to speak. And the eyes will naturally, around the table, will just look towards that other person. And again, it's a kind of a... And then it may be a while before I get back into the conversation. It's just... I've seen it happen even in sometimes when it's actually my area of expertise. So, like, I will be at a table where people are talking about energy and they're having strong opinions about what we should be doing to be going renewable or nuclear or oil. And I can't even get into the conversation because unless they know that that's my specific area, no one is going to necessarily listen to me at that point. And I think a lot of black people have that. Often you kind of have to wait. This is usually maybe a bit late in it by the time it's gone on to another topic. Or maybe if you have someone else to introduce you, because I myself feel a little bit uncomfortable a lot of times by going to the table and say, well, let me tell you, I have a degree in this. It's sort of like, what's wrong with you? We're just so skeptic to the pub. I mean, this is not like, uh, you know, seminar workshop 101 here. You don't have to give your academic credentials or what I think a lot of people who write might not realize is that a lot of times, if we don't do that, we don't get heard. Sometimes it can come across sometimes as though sometimes black people are marginalized. People always want to kind of talk about themselves. But it's not really that we do, but it's just that in order to get that time at the table, we often have to say or kind of slip it into the conversation. Which I told you, like, like you have to sort of say something like, well, yeah, I remember seeing that when you, I was doing my PhD at somewhere. And then they'll be like, oh, you have... <laughs> But it would be nice if you didn't have to do that. And it also makes you feel the other person out there that has something great to say that may not have had the opportunity to have the degree or to have that is not being heard. And that also, to me, is unfortunate. Because although I, I'm glad that I have certain credentials academically, you know, I don't, I don't think that's the beginning and the end all of, of what a person has to offer. Uh, if we don't have those credentials, we often don't get heard. It's a bit different like um, in, in Barbados where I am um, we're again, as you said, we're, I'm in a majority in terms of um, of being in that academic space and so in a way it's I guess in a sense kind of easier to not have to kind of show your credentials before you start. A lot of people here know me anyway so they kind of know my, my academic background. The, the challenge here in Barbados now is more a, a case of to give confidence to the people that they can be as good as they, they are we, I guess, we, if I'm looking at the Barbadians, can be equal to the U.S. or to Canada or to the U.K. and things like that. And that that's another challenge where we see ourselves, okay, you can be the top that you can be here in this country, but the fact that you are from a smaller country, majority Black, it's not quite the same validity. You've got to be educated in Canada or the US or England to be picked. It would be nice to change that, even though I myself did the same thing by going to Canada to be educated and to live now. But this is the kind of idea of some of the challenges and you live with them. That's the way it is. But for me, it would be good to be able to change that so that you know everybody starts somewhat equal.
Well, in my job, I often have to facilitate group conversations and not everyone is equally comfortable speaking out and speaking up and advocating for themselves. And especially people who come from marginalized backgrounds are not used to being heard. Like you just said, they're used to hearing other people of privilege open their mouths and just automatically command respect and command that ear. And they don't necessarily have that experience throughout their lives. And so when I'm doing facilitating for a group, I'm supposed to be aware of that. And I'm supposed to be watching the group to see who who is contributing and to make sure Not that everyone contributes, because sometimes a person really just doesn't have anything to say about it. But I am required to make an opening for people to reach out and say, oh, hey, Jim, we haven't heard from you today. Did you have anything to add to this? Did you have any thoughts about it? Was there anything you wanted to say? To to make sure that people are invited into that conversation is very important when you're in a position of privilege and someone else is not. It also goes even peer-to-peer when someone may just be introverted. So sometimes they just require that little bit of prodding to get them talking. They may have some really good ideas, but they just don't feel empowered to speak up. They don't feel emboldened or confident enough. And some of that has to do with just personalities. And sometimes that has to do with social conditioning, like you were describing. It reminds me of a quote that I heard once, and I wish I could remember where I heard it. But it was a black man who had gone to Morehouse College and he had gone to a regular college, like just a college college, not an all black college. And when he had his first college experience and then he went to Morehouse, transferred over to Morehouse, he said, when I went to the normal state school, I was the head of the black student union. When I went to Morehouse, I was head of the science club. I think the point you're making there is that when you go into the bigger world, I'm not sure if this is it, that is diverse, people look at you as the black expert, but you're going to come and bring that position. And then they they forget that you are actually also just an expert or interest in other fields. Your area of expertise isn't only blackness. This is, I mean, this is another challenge, I think, to us. And not only to other people that interact with us, but actually to us ourselves, where we often feel like that's what I have to offer. Remember that a lot of times we don't have much of a seat at the table, as you said there. So when we find something that people are going to actually listen to us about that, okay, they're going to listen to me a bit on this, then there is a, there is very much a tendency to want to say, okay, let me just do that thing because at least I'm being heard. I can understand that. I mean, that you often are going to feel that ultimately you just want to be seen as a professional in your field and to be, to be respected as such. So in a way, you don't want to always be the black whatever. In a way, so in a way, you don't want people to see that. But then in a way, you also do want people to see that because you want people to recognize the uniqueness of your, of your experience as well. So in a way, we, we have to try to do both. But the, the idea, at least the way I see it, the, the, the idea, the where we would like to come is a time when people will look at you as who you are, as Tracy or as David, and not it be sort of filtered through that layer of, and he is or she is white or black. Or the fact is, we're not there yet. 
think uh, the colorblindness idea is still very strong in people. Like, like, why should it matter what color you are? I mean, we all have the same blood. We all bleed red and all that kind of thing. It often is a situation where, yeah, that's what we would love to have. That's Martin Luther King's dream. That's why I thought I have a dream speech and not this is reality speech. In order to get there, we have to recognize the challenges that come to us for having, for being in the race that we are. To recognize that uh, we do have different kinds of challenges and so that people can help us to get, not do the work for us, but to help move a few barriers here and there so that we can actually then run our race. So yeah, I I can totally identify the idea of depending on where you are, they may push you to be the head of the black organization or they may head you to the head of the, the science club. Maybe in an all-black space, you more often are seen for the expertise that you have. Even, I think, in black spaces, we, we, have a, we have a duty to educate some people in terms of what the struggle and the challenge is because everybody in a black space doesn't really understand what goes into that or what has gone into the struggle for others who may be part of our group. So there's a lot of challenges there. I actually came up with an analogy. You can let me know if this works for you. But this was an analogy for colorblindness. When your car is working well, it really doesn't matter if you know what the parts are called. So I don't know. If you open my hood, I couldn't tell you what the parts are in in my car. I don't know what they are. I don't care. And it doesn't really affect the use of the car and whether or not it runs. I take it in every three months or so, get an oil check, and they check the fluids, and they check the things. Now, when I do need to know the part name is when there's something wrong. So the mechanic will come out and say, here's this filter, here's the air filter, and it's dirty, and it needs to be replaced, and you can see that it's dirty, and we need right. to put a new one in. If something is broken on the car, I would not be very well equipped to talk to somebody about fixing it. Someone who understands the names of the car parts could go in and say, oh, your carburetor has got a problem, or, oh, your battery is dead, or, oh, the alternator is not working, or, you know, whatever the issue is. Diagnosing that is much easier, and describing the problem to someone else is much easier if you actually understand that engine and understand the names of the parts and what to call them, and you have vocabulary that facilitates a discussion on how to fix the engine. So when it comes to social problems, if we can't understand the problem and we can't name it, it becomes much harder to fix it. If society is working well and there isn't a problem, there is not as much need for the labels. But when you're trying to talk about a problem and you're not allowed to use the labels that actually pinpoint the issue, it becomes a real problem, a real difficulty, a real impediment to address it when you have no vocabulary around it. It does explain quite a bit because, yeah, it's only when you really have a problem that you really then do have to find that vocabulary. Maybe the thing to do to take that analogy further is to say, well, even though your car might be working perfectly well and might have done for years, there is a possibility at some point that um, your car is going to have some issue and it's good to know that before, before it happens, or to be recognized that this is what other people deal with, because complacency is very easy to set in when you're not marginalized. And it's hard for me to know, and again, exactly what it's like to be one of those people that have never had it, from a metaphorical perspective, any car troubles. 
so you know having having a marginalized identity is so much a part of who you are i mean literally from the time that you know yourself you you know that <laughs> you know like you you never don't know that i mean you always know that there is especially if you live in a majority uh, white country but even if you don't you recognize that when you turn on the television or you into a magazine or international that generally speaking that the people that you see there don't look like you you always are aware of a difference so you do have that vocabulary and i just i've wondered something that how does the world seem for a person that sees themselves represented in everything out there i guess it's as hard for them to understand our i said our as in you know the broader marginalized context as it is for us to understand that but I, I do try to figure that most people have an issue with something in their life and maybe you try to look at that one and say well okay in the same way that maybe you suffer from maybe you have some health issue and that can be an opening for, for us to explain to that person what it's like to be marginalized maybe it is a challenge and that is why it's important to have that vocabulary and as you know you know we often have some of those words taken away from us it makes us even less able to talk. Let's face it, like the word racist is almost, we almost don't have that word anymore because almost whenever we or wherever we use it, that's seen as an offense and as an attack and as a weapon as sharp and as incisive as actually even racism itself, which is odd. But. That's where white fragility comes in, right? That's so that. you call me racist, and instead of listening to you and asking you to help me understand that, I get offended, I get defensive, I get outraged that you're accusing me of this horrible thing and you're throwing this awful insult at me. Instead of asking myself and asking you to help me understand what it is that I've done or said and how you perceive that. And why does that make you feel marginalized as a black person? Why does that make you feel demeaned? What, why, how did what I said or did impact you in a negative way that you view as racist? And instead of coming at, at it from a place of really wanting to understand that because I am the majority white, you can't really afford to upset me too much because when a minority black community upsets white people, there's a lot of power there for backlash. And that means that you have to take my offense seriously, far more seriously than I have to take yours. So when I get outraged like that, like you said, it then makes you tentative about trying to discuss that with me in the future or trying to even discuss it with another white person. Am I going to get this same reaction from this person that I got over here? Am I going to get dogpiled by a bunch of white people telling me that I'm a horrible racist as a black person just because I'm trying to explain to them that they're making me feel you know, even more marginalized by what they're saying or what they're doing. And as the white person, when I do respond in a hostile way, when I do respond in a defensive way, I'm shutting you down. I'm intimidating you. I'm pushing my power around and I'm silencing you, not just now, but also in the future. I mean, what you say there is, is exactly, I mean, the major problem. I'm the- it kind of goes worse than that in the sense that does it happens before the conversation even starts. It's not like, okay, if you get defensive, then I'm worried about bringing it up to you in the, in the future. It's like, I'm feeling the pressure before I even talk to you the first time, because I know in the society that I live in, I mean, if I look at somewhere like Canada, especially like Calgary and, and Texas, I mean, they say that, that Alberta is the, 
it's the Texas of Canada. I think that's what they call it because you have some of the same <laughs> political idea, the same kind of conservative and climate change is not real. That's a whole. That's the other. The other side, the energy, the energy fight isn't is, is enough to, to deal with the renewable energy in this thing uh, before we even get to racism and stuff. But they all connect. They all connect. So you you start already, even with someone like yourself. Right? I mean, I know that you're open. I know that kind of conversations you, 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 you have. I know that you're an ally. I know that you're liberal. But even with you, I would still be very tentative about bringing up something that, to say that something that you did was, was racist. I'd be very tentative. And I don't know if I've actually ever said that to anyone because, you know, we get we get the message that it is something that is very um, negative. Taboo, right? It's taboo, taboo to say that. And you have the power, as you quite rightly said. Um, if you get offended, I mean, or if you get upset about this, I will often suffer the consequences. I, I will tell you, I mean, like in, in Calgary, this is this is what's happened. As many people listening here, because some people listening would know me, I, I became an atheist about January 2010, I think it was. Anyway, um, the point is, at that time, that was a pretty tough thing to do in, in, in my community because I was, um, yeah, that was, we were in the Caribbean in Barbados, and I was very involved in church and everything. I mean, that was where a lot of my social life was. But I just got to the point where I couldn't continue to support something that from an intellectual perspective, I guess, and also from an emotional human justice perspective, I just didn't think was true. Because I do feel that honesty is important. So I took that decision. That meant to some extent that I had to move away from my Bahraini community. I mean, I still have friends there, but in terms of being able to link with people on that deeper philosophical level, that was not as easy. So I kind of, at least for me, everybody's different. I wanted to be part of a community that understood, or at least appreciated to a great extent, where I was philosophically, ideologically, intellectually. Naturally, in a sense, being in Canada, I, I gravitated towards spaces and organizations that were atheist and secular in nature, which, surprise, surprise, were generally white spaces. That's just how it was. And so I know when I'm talking to someone there about race, I'm, I'm already from Barbados. I don't have, a, I'm not coming in with a whole lot of friends to start with, at least at the beginning. You know, I don't have a huge network there. I don't have, my family doesn't live there. I mean, my family, is, I have family in, in BC and in, in Toronto, like in the Connecticut, but not there. So I, if I want to have a social community life within that community, I kind of have to play around to that community's uh, comfort level. I often find myself, if I want to bring up, I would say something like, well, what you said there, it was a little bit racially insensitive. I don't want to condemn you for it. I, you're a great person. Then you have to add a whole lot of caveats. You know, you're a wonderful person. I really appreciate your, your friendship. Um, you know, you've got to kind of do all this kind of dressing. And then just to give like a slight, slight criticism about something. And then even then, on many occasions, it's blown up. And I've had situations where, you know, one of my best friends in life, when I did that, that was, that was it. He just didn't want to hear that. And it was like, who are these people? I mean, it's, it's a tough thing. And then when that happens to you once, you then get even more tentative and more 
not wanting to bring up something that is a little bit and sometimes it might just be something small like okay you said you know you maybe you made some you know like little joke about something you know maybe you like there's one that people tend to do like oh you know i'm going to the caribbean and soon my tan is going to be as good as yours or something like that it's a lot of people find that joke funny sort of um <laughs> it's not and you know it might be something like that you're not telling them you can't say it. you you say like i'd prefer if you don't say things like that oh so now we've got to be silenced by you and i'm not saying you can't i'm just a kind of request that it would make me feel a little better if you didn't say you know but it comes across as if you're demanding <laughs> That I, and now you can't say anything like this around black people. So you get this kind of whoop, go up. And while these people are overblowing yeah. it and making you afraid to even open your mouth about yep. your comfort levels, yep. they're saying about the black community, I don't know why they're so sensitive. Yeah, exactly. And the, the, the worst thing about it is that it said so much that you have to be so careful that you don't just like yourself. Because remember, we have been socialized a lot to think that what the white community says is kind of how things are already. So when, and especially if you're in a white community where they're, where that's the sentiment a lot of the times, you start to look at yourself and say to yourself, maybe I am being sensitive. We were having a nice conversation about energy or music or sports or something. Why did I have to bring up this one little thing, you know, like I ruined the evening, you know, everybody was happy and then everybody got defensive and, you know, I could have just let it flow. Everything would have been good. I would have had more fun. Everyone else would have had more fun. And, and that's kind of the way that often it goes. And that to me is the insidious thing about it, that it, it you yourself help to, uh, <laughs> to perpetuate this. And this is why I think that for me, and I think for a lot of people, that was the importance of the George Floyd moment last year. You know, people will talk about, did it make a difference or did it not make a difference to the community? I can't tell you, but I can tell you it made a difference to me. Why I say that is because people at that point started to talk about things that I thought was just me. You know, like other black people, people, uh, my sister keeps pointing, like it's kind of like the black person's Me Too moment. moment. We suddenly started to realize, oh my gosh, other black people in Canada, in England, in Barbados, in Austin, Texas, wherever, I've never spoken to in my life. Like, I mean, you had that conversation with Joseph like a few weeks ago. Never met him. I mean, I know that he has Barbados roots and so on. But so much of what he's talking about is like, yes, you, you're nodding your head at the computer screen because you suddenly realize that other people have your experience and you suddenly start to realize that, wow, my experience is actually valid for sure now, and I can speak about it. So what happens is that whereas before when I would have got that pushback, I might have kind of recoiled and said, well, you know, let me not rock the boat. Now I'm saying, <laughs> now I'm going to rock it. And I, and I do feel more courageous to, to speak out. And, um, and I did write an article which, which I shared around that time which was kind of raw about, you know, like it's two white people, like my white friends. Even that was not, I still had to couch that in a way that it wasn't too rough, but it was still uh, direct enough. And, and I do feel that we do need to be direct. And that's why I am 
like coming on and talking to you about things like this is important, but like, because I do feel that the time has come for that change. We cannot recoil now. So for a lot of a lot of white people, out there, I can understand that they would say, "Why all of a sudden this is a problem? Like you guys never had a problem with this before. This was always how it was. Why all of a sudden? Well, you were hearing it now all of a sudden, but we had this for a long, a long time, for many, many years. We'd be talking among ourselves about the problems we had, but we just couldn't bring it up. And the exciting thing for me now is that we can bring it. It's still a lot of problems, but at least we can um, talk about it. And there's a long distance between talking about it and getting something done. But, gee, we have so far to go in this race that just being at the starting line feels like a victory sometimes. And, and again, since George Floyd, I have not been in Canada, I've been in Barbados. So I, I am kind of, I guess, half looking forward to it, half a little bit anxious about the fact that having these conversations more directly with my white friends when I'm back in Calgary and in a white space where perhaps I'm not safe. But I think at this point, I'm just going to live authentic and kind of <laughs> just let the chips fall where they may. You know, that's one of the things that happened with me when I became an atheist. That was, suppose that was me starting to be authentic about telling the truth about what I believe. So that now I see this as now like the next step. Okay, now I'm going to be more authentic. <laughs> and maybe one day I will get to the point when I don't have to pretend no more masks. The COVID mask is okay, but not the other mask. I'm not there yet. We're not there yet, but that's where I would like to go to, where I can be truly authentic about how I feel. Because people want to hear, I know people want to hear me in a way, but people do want to hear from me, even though they don't want to hear from me. In the sense that I think they would like knowledge, but it would be nice to get the knowledge without having to go through this discomfort of, I played a part in this thing that is hurting you. And I know that this people don't like that, but I guess that's not my problem. I mean, that sounds bad. I <laughs> that, that's not my issue as a black person. How you deal with the guilt, how you deal with all that, that's on you. My, 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 my role here is to try to tell you from my perspective and to encourage other people from their perspective as a black person or as a person of color to tell their stories. What you do with that, how you deal with that emotionally, maybe you maybe you could talk about that. But and I know that that can be tough because I mean I remember that you know you did when we did talk last week a little bit. You did talk about your feelings about you would wish that you could go back and do things differently with a black person that you might have treated in a racially insensitive way. In yeah, the past. absolutely. And uh, and I was saying like no, I mean like it's unfortunate that that happened, but the thing to do is to look forward and to not kind of dwell on that thing that you did not to center yourself in that but that can be a challenge i don't know all i could do is sort of like to encourage you not to do that in a sense but in a way i guess every person has to deal with regret yeah with with their way of doing it and i think that's perfectly fine and perfectly honest to know that you feel regretful of certain things but then that is in the realm of that community in the white community to deal with that what i feel happens sometimes is that the white community also wants the black community to deal with that as well, so that we also have to not only deal with our own uh, marginalization, oppression or whatever, but also try to alleviate the guilt of the white community as well, uh, which really I think is not really fair of us, on us to be doing. It's draining a little bit. And I know that this may sound like, like a lot of times um, 
white friends or other people that don't have my experience will say, you know, David, thank you for taking the time to explain this or to put this out. And, you know, I now know and I understand and I feel good about it. This is nice to hear, but often people don't realize that even sometimes doing that has taken a toll because until you actually respond like that, I don't know what the response is going to be. So it's like I put this out there and, and like say something and then maybe like a comment comes up on my blog or somebody says a comment on my Facebook and I'm like, oh my God, you know, there's that, that moment like, oh my gosh, <laughs> what's going to hit me now? Am I going to hear you? And then they say, well, thank you, David. And you're like, you kind of breathe that sigh of relief, but you've gone through like this minute of what if you get that kind of thing coming back at you? And that's really tough because when you tell something, someone something and it dismisses you, it it does hurt a lot. I mean, I don't think people sometimes recognize the level to which erase or dismiss as a black person. It's like a dire, <laughs> you know, like to your heart. it might seem dramatic to people, but it's like you have already gone through life where people don't think that you matter. And when that is done to you, it's one more time. It's like, it's one more hit. And it just kind of triggers all the other times in life that you've gone through that. And it's, it's like, you're going <laughs> to take yourself off of this heap of underneath this um, rubble that has covered you. Yeah, I mean, it, it's good. And I mean, in a way, it's I'm glad to be in this space and doing this. But it also does take from you. And I mean, and I don't even, and I mean, if I'm saying this about myself, I mean, there are other people that are far, far more active in this community than than, than I am. And I can't even imagine what they go through because ha- you have to have so much self-care to kind of recover from the interactions. That to the white person was just a simple thing. Oh, David told me this thing and now this is good. So I just want to kind of get that out there too. I mean, because I'm not sure that people always understand fully how much that is that's why it's, it is good to have others speak into their community as well um, you know other people who are white or not black to be able to take some of the burden that don't have the risk that don't have the emotional and the psychological risk i go two ways about it because i also don't want white people speaking for us because that's the other mistake that people make that they consider that we want allyship as we will now take over the microphone and tell everybody else what's needed, including you. So part of this process is trying to <laughs> to bring the white person that, yes, we need you, but in this role as a support, not as a leader, not as a white savior. One thing that you were just talking about and what it reminded me of was someone posted today and they were talking about going to a talk that was given by someone who was black and they were talking about dealing with racism and being marginalized and how difficult it is to talk about racism with white people and that idea of white fragility and how it shuts down a conversation. And they said their friend stood up during the Q and a and asked a question about, well, to, to make more of a statement to say, if I do or say a racist thing, please tell me. You're asking the black person to put themselves out there and to take that risk and to be vulnerable with you. And they don't know what they're going to get back. Like you inside you, you know, you're the person that might be open to it and will receive that criticism in a way that is positive. But the black person who doesn't know you doesn't know that. 
and you're asking them to take a big risk and to forget about all of their past problems that they've had when they've tried to discuss this and all of that social training that has told them not to talk about this and not to bring this up and you keep quiet about it. Don't offend that white person because then they won't be your friend and then they won't help you out and then they won't be your ally. There's this whole thing of understanding that it's not a black person's job to tell me when I'm doing or saying something racist. Some people say, well, then how am I supposed to learn? And the reality is there are plenty of black voices, black blogs, black Twitter, black podcasts. There are black voices there who are talking all the time. You just have to go and take those steps to find them and to listen to them it's part of why I'm doing what I'm doing with this podcast. It's part of why I include links and resources to different courses, to different people, to different resources, to try and give my white audience resources to use to educate themselves so that they're not leaning on their black friend to educate them entirely about the whole idea of race. And like you said, put them in a position where they feel like they have to speak for an entire community of people who may have different ideas on certain topics. It's really important, I think, for for the person on the, the white and the empowered and the privileged end of it to understand that power imbalance and that power dynamic and to show some respect regarding that. Yeah, it takes a lot to do that, but you're, you're quite right. What, what you said there at the beginning is a lot of what we get. You know, this is your community. Why don't you stand up and talk for yourself? So it's a catch-22 because when we do stand up to talk for ourselves, it is why do you guys always want to be talking about race? When we don't talk for ourselves, it's like, why don't you guys speak up so we know what your problems are? So, you know, either way, we, we lose. But you're right. I think people have to be motivated to go out there and look for the information. Part of the problem is that, you know, I work in the environment. Almost is like an analogy to, to climate change. One, one of the reasons why climate change remains a problem in the world today is because the countries that are doing the polluting, <laughs> you know, the bigger countries, the U.S., you know, Europe, China, you know, these countries are not the ones that may be the most vulnerable to the impact. The countries that are vulnerable to impact are countries like here, like Barbados, that don't pollute. But we're the ones with close to sea level, with the beaches, with groundwater that is, is vulnerable, with coastlines that we can, that we need and so on. And so the problem that we have in this, in the community is to get people who are responsible for it to do work to help people um, that is not, it's not them that are the ones that are suffering. Climate change in Barbados issues are not going to, it's not going to win votes in the U.S. And, that, and that's part of the problem with, uh, with, with racism too, because the people that really have the power to do something about this are the people that don't have the, the, as you often say, the skin in the game. And the thing is that for the average white person out there, they have the power to do that. But where's the motivation? What is the motivation for a white person to go out there and be a champion for racial equality when their system of white supremacy is working quite well for them? This is the reality. You may recognize the inequality of it, but at some level, you you happen to be on the right side of it and you get certain benefits and why would you want to fight 
to change the system, you know, to go out of your way to push for to change the system that you personally are not going to benefit from. And I think this is part of it, that yes, the resources are out there, but the question is, is what, what is the motivation for the white person to do that? And often we say, well, it's better in the long term. I try to put it in a sense that the more voices we have at the table, the better it is because all those brilliant minds are out there that maybe black people are more marginalized people are people marginalized in other ways, you know, trans voices or, or other voices like that. Maybe the ones that can solve the problems, but if you don't make them feel that they're part of the discussion, then the world misses out on this whole set of people that could potentially pull you out of this mess. But even then, in terms of the short term, where you're going to be in life, I may not benefit you. I mean, it means you as a white person, you might not get that last space to go into college that is open. It might go to a black person. Or you may not get the promotion that you think you work really hard for. And for a lot of people, that's when suddenly being an ally for black people isn't so much fun anymore. <laughs> it's, it's only fun if it feels like, well, I am getting something, uh, either financially or like a, a status, but also maybe some feel-good points. A lot of my white friends, they want, they want to be hearing, you're doing such a great job and you know, without you, where would I be? Because I came to Canada and I had nobody and I was trying to get this position and you can They may want that credit. I've had that in Canada already. In fact, this is a, this is a funny thing because this is like a two-time sort of white savior thing. There's a guy who I used to be with in one of these secular groups. He would come in and he would pat me on the back and say, you see this guy here? We had to work so hard to get him into Canada and um, you know, he was a refugee, blah, blah, blah. And then people around the table kind of have to like gently tell him that confusingly with another black person in the group. This is the narrative that people want. You know, they want the narrative that says, hey, I help you. And that, and that I feel like that kind of cred. And so white people will often, I found in my, in my experience, help you if there's that kind of feel good stuff to come back to. So even though they may not benefit personally like with getting the promotion they want or getting their child into the cars they want or whatever. They they have that kind of feel good that they can take to the bank of social justice. So they can tell other white people, you know what? This is what I did for against racism today because look at that guy. He would not have made it without me. What we condition ourselves to do often as black people in this and this is helps the part keeps the power dynamic where it is, is that we then say, okay, I'm going to have to find a way to give credit to my white friends for my, um, for my achievements. It is going to be some short-term loss to you being an ally. You are also going to have to take some splash damage. Like I thought, you know, you are going to be called racist when you aren't actually being racist. And you have to be able to take that. I'm not saying that it wasn't fair. Like, if you're thinking about whether it's fair to you that you were called racist or whether somebody really is giving you the credit that you deserve, if that's the kind of questions that you're asking yourself, then you're not really an ally. You're not in this thing for the right reason. So you have to be prepared to make some sacrifice as an ally and to be only interested in the end goal, which is more equality for Black people and people of color. And that's not for everybody. 
in a way, what, what makes this thing difficult about our world a lot of times is that there's a lot of social pressure to be seen as being open to diversity and to be for black power supporting at least in many places especially maybe around liberal whites it's there and so there's a lot a lot of a push to be performative in your allyship because you must be seen that way and um that that's how we get disappointed so so often because then we realize that that's all it is in some ways sometimes i think we would be happy if a person would be honest and say you know what I like what you're doing, but honestly, I know I have power, I know I have privilege, and I don't really want to give that up because I kind of feel comfortable here. You know, if people would say that, then we could kind of explore that and have the conversation about how then, given that that's how you feel, how do we make progress? But what happens a lot of times is that the white person will say, no, 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 that's not it. I'm not guilty. I am perfectly fine with everything. I just think that, yeah, maybe there's a bit of reverse racism here. But no, I'm totally for Black people. I am completely on your side. There's no one less racist than me. I just think you guys might be going a little bit far in the Black Lives Matter, whatever it is. So this <laughs> is infuriating. Like, own, sometimes they're like, own your racism. I mean, like, you know, just own it. Again, it's hard because people feel guilty anyway, that, that you don't have to feel personally guilty or about the fact that you are a privileged person or person with power because you didn't give yourself that power it's all a matter of just chance i could easily be born white and you born black i think one of the issues is the systemic when you say someone is born an oppression oppressed is about the system it's not only because of the individual choice that the oppressor makes or the oppressed makes you come into a social world that has certain rules in it, certain forces in it, and those forces act on you, and you get the privilege or the marginalization based on where you are in that. What we want to do, what I would hope people want to do, is to change that system so that even if we are in that and we can't do anything, at least other generations or other people are in the future, people are not born into these systems. We need to find ways each of us, to change that a little bit, to change that structure, that system in some way. It's not an individual thing. It's, it's not a binary. I know we live in a digital world. That there's some people that are racist, some people that are not racist. That's not how this works. Everybody, it's a blanket of racism that covers everybody. Or someone has thrown a paint eraser and we all get splashed with it. So we, we can't avoid that. All we can do is, is to try to do what we can to to weaken the force to weaken that systemic force and that and that's what we need to do so we all need to look inside of us individually and that is kind of my message where, where a, lot, a lot of people we it's so easy to look and see what it's those other white people are racist um and and i mean it's it's black people too it's all of us many of us that are all of us are black too also have white supremacists views we have racist views often against us or against other minorities and we've got to fight with that every day i see that within myself people are sometimes surprised even with all of this discussion and with all of this writing and thinking about these things i still have indoctrination in me that tells me yeah you're not quite as good as a white guy over there you know and that's the me- that's the message that i have to overcome and a lot of times when i say this to other people who are black they will say 
No, that's not me. I'm a proud black man, blah, 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 black woman, blah, blah, blah. No one can, can pull me down. And again, that's a little bit of denial of the reality of what, you know, we, we, we've been born into. So we all, in a sense, I think, deny a little bit of that racism. But if we can actually face it, it's a systemic, so it's not any one person's and just and just own it. And that to me would be a start to a lot of, a lot of um a lot of things going forward. But we, we live in a world where for many people once you once they're called a racist in any context, the conversation stops. And that is unfortunate. And they because they they're looking for other people. So they they're really good at pointing out other racists. In fact there's some people there's some white people that are much better almost to spotting racism in other, in other white people than I am because they are, they're so keen to throw that other person. Like, it's the cops in Canada. It's like, it's America's problem. It's not Canada's problem, which is why sometimes if I have some nice criticism or sometimes in America, like a lot of times you guys will say, in America, in this country, this is how the racism is. And I have to, to try to explain to other people in other countries that, yes, America has a special problem, but it's not unique. That's why I often say racism is a pandemic, like COVID-19. It's a pan- it's everywhere. Unless everybody recognizes that, okay, this is an issue we all have to deal with, and it's not individuals, tends not to get solved. So that is that, I think, is part of the issue. And um, the important thing is to try to be anti-racist. You are going to be somewhat racist. That's because you're a human being. I don't have what I have without someone else paying a price for it. And that's, that's something I think that is difficult for people to understand. It's not difficult for the people that are paying the price to understand it. It's difficult for the people who were just born with it to understand that you can just be born with resources that give you an advantage over someone else. It's not just that this person is disadvantaged. It's that they're disadvantaged, which gives you an advantage. People will say, well, you don't know me. That's another thing I hear a lot of times. You know, when I tell people about, you know, white person that they would have racist attitude. Well, how can you say that you don't know me? I don't have to know you. I just have to know the society that you live in. You know, because as you said, you you take that advantage without even necessarily being given to you. And, And I mean, as a black person too, you also can benefit from white supremacy, which is another thing that, that makes it tough, which I think a lot of people don't see. I've been educated in Canada. I work in that system of education, which is a white, you know, that is a, it's a structure that, that has been um, developed and an institution that is a white supremacist institution. I have had access to significant enough resources that have allowed me to be a part in that system. But it's a system that is not designed to benefit people like me. I just so happen to have enough privilege in other areas that I have been able to overcome, to some extent, the disadvantage of having uh, black as my skin color. What that means is that has meant that in order to be successful, I have had to, in some symbolic way or otherwise, become white in the sense that I have to be able to, so like I have to do the exams or the IQ test or whatever I'm doing that is designed not necessarily for me to succeed in, but I've had to be able to make myself able to succeed in that. While doing that, I have inadvertently strengthening white supremacy systems. 
to, to take an example, I mean, when I had an, op an option, I could have to do a PhD stage and done it in Barbados or the Caribbean. I opted to go to Canada because within the academic circles, having a degree from the University of Calgary will give me, in people's minds, a higher level of validity than University of West Indies Cave Hill, even if I did the same study. And people from here would understand that and would agree and would recognize that in order for me to do it and to come back as I am now and work here, having that overseas education gives me an opportunity maybe to do more than if I'd stayed here. But at the same time, while I'm doing that, what is happening is that I am strengthening what is already a stronger system in the Canada or in US or in Europe or where or in England or wherever you are. And um, while there's these other systems don't get weaker. So when I do that and I become successful a lot of times, especially being one of the few black people, as you had said earlier, in the academic, then I get also some level of prestige for that. You know, people look at me, you know, like as a black person that has been able to overcome certain barriers to get certain where I am. And that, in a way, kind of makes me feel good, I suppose, as a human being. You know, everybody likes to be complimented. But at the same time, what this does is that it puts pressure on the it's individual again. It's not, and the system doesn't change. It's just that I've overcome it. And then in a way, because I've been successful in that system, it's hard for me then to be critical of the system that I've been successful in because then people are going to say, well, how can you go and use the system and then you want to bring it down? Because then it bring down the system. I bring down myself. Right, but you're forced into the system, right? I mean, this, 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 you didn't create the system, but you, you were forced into it. Forced into and we have white European values that are how we measure success, right? So if you're going to be successful, you had better conform to, to white European value. And if I want to succeed, I had better conform to white male European value, like those white Western male values. I, women, I, I keep, I say this all the time that women should not have to be men to succeed and yeah. black people should not have to be white to succeed. There should be diversity of the understanding of success. There should be greater perspectives about what success means and what we reward and how we reward it and not such a narrow definition yeah. of success that we all have to funnel ourselves right. into and conform to this this cishet white male western system and, and and that's exactly true so what i mean what i think it does in the end often is that when you do succeed you know you, you become you know, you can become the token black artist and you can be the token woman, you know, the token person. And it is like, you can get benefits sometimes by being the only black person in something or the, uh, maybe the only woman, because then people who want diversity will, will push you forward because like, hey, this is to show that we have black people that have succeeded. And sometimes you feel good at that as a black person, but what that is, it doesn't motivate you to change the system because if you change that system, What's going to happen is that there are going to be more opportunities for other black people. This is what we want. And when that happens, it means that you, as the one who may be there, you are not going to be that quote unquote special anymore. And, and I think we have to be able to live with, with that, that it's not for us to be special, it's for us to create opportunities for other people, for the 
system to change. At least that's how I, how I look at it. So, I mean, I started to look at myself and what the challenge to me too, but go ahead. No, I was just going to say that it's a bit insulting because in order to get where you are, like you said, you had to work that much harder. You had to overcome disadvantages that you were just simply born into because of the architecture of a society that you then had to get past and you then had to game a system that was built for people who weren't you. And you had to succeed in that system that was built for somebody else, but you made it work for you. And you achieved really admirable level of success in an education academic field, which is often seen as a challenging field to actually become successful in. And when you get there, it's like you say, suddenly the thing that makes you special is your black and we need that black person on staff, not, wow, you really worked that much harder to get where you are. So it's almost in a more of an appreciation about something that you were just born into than what you actually were able to achieve in a system that was set up against you. But in, in fairness, though, sometimes the people do actually see what you have overcome. But what, what I've been finding is the issue is that they will emphasize on that. And I've seen this even um, on some shows on TV. I think it was it happened with Don Lemon on uh, MSNBC. He's from CNN, but it was on MSNBC. Like he had, he was talking about some of the issues that he had to deal with as a black kid growing up, and uh, you know, and how how hard it is. But then they start to ask him, "But don't, how do you feel about where you've gotten to?" And he then talked about, yes, he's done really well, and he thanked all the people, the white people, and so that would have helped him. But again, I feel that this puts the emphasis again on the individual. White person may say, well, if I can recognize that this one person has done really well and they're really great, that's my support of the Black population. And if other Black people would do that level of work, like if other Black people would do what I did, they would also be successful. And that becomes a narrative that we just have to train harder, that in a way we got to try to get over these hurdles and we, if we got to be twice as good or three times or four times as good, we're going to be four times as good and we can be the same as them, which is all well and good. But at the same time, what, what we really want is for people to knock those hurdles over, not send us back into the gym to do 100 more reps so that we get stronger to, to rise over the hurdles. We actually want to be running on the flat for the 100 meters like everybody else. Often what they, they do, though, is make it is make it a, you are so strong. And even they might even admire us. Oh, you black people are so strong. I could never do what you did, you know, I mean, what you had to go through. And all that kind of makes them get off the hook for changing the system. You're being complimented, so you find it hard to criticize someone that's complimenting you. But the point is that the system doesn't change. Well, I, I read on, you know, on Kendi's book, How to Be Anti-Racist. The one part of it that really stuck with me, he said, I should be able to be black and mediocre. And my first thought was, what is he talking about? Why would I want to be mediocre as a black person? But then I understood what he was saying. Absolutely. You should, you should not have to be like, super amazing in order to be successful. There are people who are white and mediocre, and they get decent success right the black, the black kid or the black guy that just wants to put in enough to get a c or to get over he should get the same thing as the white person that is putting in enough to get a c it shouldn't be like well you should be if you worked and got the a's then you get like you know other people work why can't you work like the other people that's not the point the point is that the system needs to be fair 
so that nobody should have to be a hundred or a thousand times better to get there. And so I find sometimes what happens is that by complimenting black people, you know, uh, whether it be say like Stacey Abrams, you know, in, in the, you know, okay, like she overcame this thing and like they get the black vote out so that they can, like, it shouldn't take that. Like it, you should not have to be a hero or like a superhero in order to just do normal stuff. <laughs> you know, that's kind of let, let me know that. That's why now, even in what I do, I'm trying to sort of get people away from even being that complimentary towards me. You know, <laughs> like because I, yes, it's nice to be recognized, but the, the what we really want is to not have to do the stuff. If people would take some of that admiration for black people and actually put it into trying to make the system more equitable for black people we might actually be getting somewhere i know it seems sort of counterintuitive i mean it's good the representation is important in the sense so that a black person being like you know barack obama to be able to show that you can get there as a black person does inspire others to to do the same but I feel sometimes there is too much of an emphasis on keeping the system and trying to get us to get up there. And then and then they'll argue, well, if you made it, then maybe we don't need to change the system. That's another thing, too. We'd be victims of our success. Then we fight and fight to get some there. And they say, oh, well, look, Blacks are being in university. Blacks are getting PhDs. Blacks are leading countries. Maybe this whole thing about racism is actually not needed. So we become victims of our own success. Yeah, you see, well, we see that with athletes, right? People yeah. will say, why don't you shut up? You're getting paid well. Like, you're making good money. Why are you yeah, talking exactly. about this? Yeah, that's true. I saw discrimination against, you know, this group called, that was called Voices. They were a, um, a trans black group in Calgary that said that they didn't want the police at Pride Parade. And I was surprised that nobody seemed to think that this was a problem in the group that I was in. Or not many people. They thought that this group was a nuisance. And that, that kind of bothered me that people would use the word nuisance about a group that was mainly black people. That kind of that hit deep, you know, like that that somehow this was a small, insignificant group of people that were trying to destroy the whole of pride. You can imagine how that would make you feel as a black person. That's anyway. So so I try to use um in the discussions like, hey, it's kind of like how that what is being done to this minority group. It's kind of like what happens to me as a black person. And I never surprised that I got pushed back. Like, but you are a university professor. I mean, what were you talking about racism? I mean, this is not anything that's happening to you. And I was blown. I mean, that was but I actually used to be pretty naive in this um in this rate, like in terms of I was thinking of how <laughs> Other people that were around me viewed race, I would have to say. I look back at it and I realized that I have been because at that time I was like 2017. I, you know, it's not a long time ago, but you know, and, and I, and I see how these people are, um, not seen. And I, and I just, and you get that kind of thing that you, because you are have had and some measure of success in some area, what are you talking about? I mean, and they talk about the basketballers and the athletes and the entertainers, you know, but who's owning all those things? The, there's you know? the there's the rich player and then there's yeah. the uber wealthy owner. I mean, uh, what I say that in a, in a sort of, this may sound crude in a sense, but basically we live in a world where the black is kind of like, it's kind of like the entertainer for 
the white person. And, you know, that's kind of like a, a sort of how it is. Like we are the gladiators and we entertain, we, you know, we play the sports, we sing, we act, we tell the joke, like anything that is entertaining, like a service like that. That's where blacks tend to, to get their, or we black tend to get our recognition and be held up. And not so much as the people watching or the people consuming are, are more so the white people. So it, that, that kind of, um, mindset goes all the time. You know, it's, it's, we don't, we think that, Hey, we can be the great ba- NBA basketball. We don't have a dream about owning a team. We have a, a dream that is about being the entertainer. And what often has happened is that they will look at how successful a lot of us might be in that and say, well, look, you know, they may even pretend to be um, like sort of compliment. Oh, you you can, you can, you're way funnier than we are. You can dance way better than we are. You're real, fa- real much faster, or, you know. And it seems like a compliment to the black person, but in a sense, it's a, it, is a, it is a sort of way of keeping you in that position because in the same way that it's not said, but the, the sort of implication that I might not be able to dance like you or sing like you or run like you, but you also can't run a business like me or <laughs> own something like me. So I'm always very, I, I'm very um, wary of when people in any context try to kind of associate a, an ability at, and at something with a particular skin color. Right, it's just it's re it reinforces the social it's, architecture. It's, it's, right, and the stereotypes that that, yeah. that that we have. I mean, and, this I is your place. This is all, yeah. I mean, and and I and we get that. And you talked about racism in um, different country contexts, and one one of the ones that I get or we get from people from the Caribbean, she gets stereotyped in that all the time. So it's not just racial. When as an academic. You know, I'm, I'm in places where I want to, I want to network and I want to, to, to get to know people in my field, like everybody else, you know, to, to kind of, you know, to talk about my projects or my consultants, whatever we're talking about. And people just want to talk about, oh, but you're from Barbados. Oh, this nice sea over there. I went to my honeymoon in Barbados. Yeah. I mean, those people, those beaches are pretty great down there, you know, and. Oh, you must, it must be so hard doing research in Barbados. Like, yeah, <laughs> put me in your suitcase next time you're going to Barbados. <laughs> it drives me crazy because this is the stereotyping. And it is, and to be, it's kind of like another level of racism. The idea that that is what the Caribbean is. It is just steel pans and steel drums and people wearing bikinis on beaches and Viana and all. Nice. I mean, we are proud and happy about the place we live. We're glad that we got that tourists love us. But at the same time, we get put in this box. Even in this COVID-19 here, you know, um, we had three months that there were no flights in and out of any Caribbean country or Mexico. Because what the government of Canada referred to us as sun destinations. <laughs> there will be no trips to sun destinations because in their view, people are coming to the Caribbean because they want to get away, because they want to like, so let's punish these white Canadians that want to <laughs> come and have a holiday. But meanwhile, there's loads of, there's loads of Caribbean people that live in Canada 
for whom these countries are not some destinations. This, this is where our families live. This is where our people are from. These are places that we that that you know we've got people who are ill and sick and funerals and people we want to meet. And we are be and no one's think no one's thinking about that as a Canadian. They're just not we don't matter to the same extent as the stereotypical white Canadian. And this these are ways which racism then plays almost through this kind of system because we also because we also don't have the resources. We need the tourist money. We need all that kind of thing. So we have to play into that. We have to bring tourists here even if it may not be the best thing for the health of the country. We have to do all of it because that's the way that the system is set up. We've got to cater because when we're talking about the tourists here in the Caribbean, although they're black tourists, we, we're talking about basically white people. <laughs> no one's talking about, oh, you know, working in the Caribbean must be great because the Caribbean is one of the most vulnerable places to climate change. And therefore, the work that you do there can make a difference to people who want. No, no one ever sees that. And I'm going to say no one ever sees that. I mean, even people who are themselves experts in this area. People who are environmentalists or are energy practitioners, even them only see these countries from that one dimensional space. So maybe this is the, um, the, the, the kind of message to anyone listening to that. Please do not make the joke about you wish to be in my suitcase when you go to Barbados next time because I smile at you, but it's awkward as hell because it just reinforces the idea that that's why you see my country and that's how you see me. I play music, I play reggae and calypso and stuff like that. And sometimes that's what people actually more want to talk about because it fits more with the black narrative. You know, the laid back guy plays the sass. Oh man, that's so cool. It's cool. It's nice to do it. But I also want to be seen as a multi because because that's the thing with the, in the white community, if you're white, especially a white male, people are able to see all of those parts of you at once. So that if you are a guitar player and a singer and a professor, and a, you can be all of these things and people will respect you from every one of it. And that's what we from the Caribbean want to, you know, to be, to be seen as something more than just the one thing so i guess that's my rant <laughs> yeah you're just saying that there are certain things that eclipse certain other things about your identity to people on the outside looking in who are yeah. not like you right. and it gets tiresome it does i sometimes wonder if this is the way that you know the the beautiful models you know like someone who like where no one gets past their beauty to talk about anything else about them in a way that's kind of what it's like being from bar <laughs> They're so mesmerized by your beauty, your country's beauty, that it doesn't, that becomes all you are. <laughs> you know, you've come from a beautiful place. They ask you, why did you come to, why did you leave Barbados to come to Canada? That's the question I get all the time. And they say it's so lovely there. As if weather is the only factor that plays into a person's decision of where they want to live. So, you know, it's, again, a lot of times these conversations, if they were how once in a way would be fine. But you know, when when you're dealing with this conversation every day, you know you don't want to you don't want to upset people because people often are trying to 
to make a con connection with you when they meet you. So if they, if that's what they know about Barbados, then they'll start with that. You know, Rihanna or you know, because Rihanna, for anybody listening, Rihanna is actually from Barbados. And, and one one of my claim to fame in Canada is that Rihanna actually went to the same high school that I did. People actually more, <laughs> more interested in that part than any other than any other achievement that I have in life. <laughs> it's like I went to Columbia School, which is where Rihanna went. Depending on your mood in the day, it can be fun. You can kind of jump out with it, but you know, you're not always in that place. And if you are at a time when you really want to get forward and talk about the stuff that you do, because sometimes in an interaction, you only have a certain amount of time. And if that time is being spent talking about how beautiful Barreras is and not about the stuff that you do, that may be the only opportunity that you had to talk with person X. So yes, let's talk about how beautiful Barreras is, but let's also talk about the other people there. St. Lucia, that's another beautiful island close here. They've got two Nobel Prizes, prize winners come from St. Lucia. How many people know that? You know, it's, this is the kind of thing that I suppose in sort of awareness, it's a lot of levels of discrimination, I think, that we have to get through. It's hard. I mean, I got more questions. <laughs> There's more questions than answers, but I was hoping that having this kind of discussion will help to um to at least put things in people's minds that, that maybe they might not have thought about before and maybe other black people out there saying, Yes, David, I totally agree. Some may disagree too, which is also great. I can only speak from my experience and you know, that's what, what I've seen. I mean, I've talked about Canada, I also talked about I mean I grew up in England too, which was another experience and that was probably the first time that I came sort of face-to-face -face with racism because I grew up here and again I mean it was here but you don't recognize it especially a kid I was only 13 years old and it was actually a, in a store with a black person funny enough that it was a situation where somebody thought I was stealing in the store and it was uh, but it was not you know I was just kind of like hanging around maybe where I don't know what it was confection or wherever it was and guy comes back and he just kind of asked me to sort of put my hand up and kind of um, patting me down and against the wall and stuff. I mean, it was really traumatic. But because it was not done by a white person, for a long time, I didn't really see that as racism. But now I look back at it and realize that that was part, he was also a victim, he's part of the system, you know, and that is kind of how things go sometimes in, in this stuff. Like, <laughs> it comes in many ways, you know, it comes in many, many ways. But um, I think, I mean, you've, you've talked to people that have had some, you know, even worse things, but these things stay with you. Like, I mean, it, you don't forget things that happen, you know, um, even where I live in camp, like there was a time that I was, I was just walking home and, um, and this lady, right, like, like she came up, like really, really irate with her finger pointing my face, said, get your car out of my driveway or something. And I had no idea what she was talking about. I didn't even live in that area. And I said, well, look, man, I'm just walking home. My house is over there. And she got really irate and was like, stop trying to bullshit. Thing. Like, you guys have been doing this, like, for weeks. Like, you come, you do. And I, I honestly, I said to her, like, lady, like, I really don't know what you're talking about. And then it's, I was kind of at a loss because I didn't know really what to do. Because she wasn't believing me. And she was just getting more angry. And I couldn't make up... <laughs> So I just started, started to walk towards my house and she kind of looked at me and she said, you don't live over there. I said, no, my house is over there. And she just stormed off and went to this other house. 
apparently like there was a group of other black guys over there that were making them and she just saw me walking down assumed I was a part of it she, you were the black she, guy I was the black guy and she never like and the thing about it is that that the, the tone like it's not just like the tone like the, the the way that I would not ever address anyone like that you know like um raise voice finger in the face and shout you know like just someone that you know I would not address I mean and so that is the disrespect that you that you get and then when she realized that she was wrong there was no apology. no apology there was no anything in fact I just, it was like, I just disappeared. Like it was, again, I like almost literally disappeared from her. Like she didn't see me anymore. Like I no longer was part of her story. So she just went on and it was just like, boom. And I just kind of was one of these things again. Just doing that to sort of give like some of the examples of some things that may seem small to other people out there. Well, you know, there are some people who will say, well, you know, she just made an honest mistake or, Blah, blah, you know that you know you can't call that racism but the thing is that it is because you know that she would not address a white person in that in that manner you would we just would not that level of disrespect is not given to, to one of your peers you know so and, and every time this how it just kind of brings back another experience that you've had before you know and when you you know and, and it makes you realize it doesn't matter your doctor water those moments it doesn't really matter. And I think maybe that is, it's kind of how it makes you feel at the end of the day, rather than the incident itself. You may say, well, no right was taken away from me. You know, it wasn't like I was a tot. It wasn't like, uh, you know, she didn't call. I mean, I think she was, bef- that was before the term Karen was, in- <laughs> was, was invoked. But, you know, it, <laughs> I, I was at a point where I think she probably would have or might have been close to calling the police, in which case, you know, there would have been another thing. But luckily, I mean, it didn't happen. But what I mean is that sometimes, just because it ends okay, because a lot of times people say, well, it ended okay, you know, you got home, you were able to have a nice evening, so what's the big deal? I mean, you didn't get shot, you didn't get pushed to the ground, you know, and, and that, and sometimes I find that's another thing that happens with this race thing, that people... You know, it's almost like only the extreme ones are the ones we talk about, the George Floyds, that, oh, how many black people get killed? But there's all these other microaggressions there that count too, you know, and it's part of the, it's part of the whole system. Well, I, I mean, yeah. I shared with you the last time we talked a story about something that happened in my past where I had an interaction where that I really regretted with a young black boy. And what I had said to you is, the way I handled it was the way I would have handled it with anyone in that situation. The reason I looked back at it and regret it and see it as racist is because that kid wasn't anyone. He was a young black boy. And the way I treated him was rude because in my head, I justified it as I would be rude to anybody in that situation. But what I wasn't doing was respecting the power imbalance. I was not respecting the privilege that I had in that situation and that this interaction from his perspective was an interaction with a white woman. And here he was a black boy and he is probably painfully aware of that imbalance. And I'm disregarding it and saying to myself, I'm treating him like I would treat anybody in this situation. And as a result, this young black boy had a really negative interaction with 
a white woman that he really didn't need to have. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about the idea of carrying this with you, that's what I feel when I think of that situation is I gave this kid something to carry with him that in his head was this racist interaction with a power imbalance to it where he was on the receiving end of, you know, my abuse of my power, my throwing my power around really irresponsibly and not taking it seriously and not um, respecting it at all. Now I look back and I realize that even if the woman you were describing, even if someone said, actually, she is like that to everybody, my response would be she still has to exercise more caution when she's dealing with a dynamic where she's in a power position in the social exchange. And she needs to be aware of when that's happening and how to handle it and show more respect in those situations where she has a potential for abusing that power. And if she doesn't do that, it may not be an overtly racist ideologically racist thing that she's doing, but it's certainly racial insensitivity because she's being completely insensitive to the actual architecture that's happening and where she is positioned and where that you were positioned and how that plays out and how that feels. No, I think, I think that is um, is a, a, a reasonable assessment of that kind of interaction. And I think though that sometimes when you say that, I mean, yes, that's absolutely is true, but at the same time, sometimes people use this this kind of discussion, not saying you, but others, as a kind of a excusing or which could sometimes seem like a gaslighting of the of the black person in question because it is like saying, well, you didn't really see what you saw because you know this person is like that with with everybody. I've had that sometimes when I said about how someone treated me, said, oh. They're just a miserable person that talks like that to everybody. And often you feel kind of, that's another dismissal because once again, the person has removed that lens and it's basically sounds like they're telling you that racism doesn't, um, you know, that doesn't exist. Even if that's not really what they're trying to tell you. But what you're saying is right. You, you have to be, to be aware of the, of that power imbalance that is there. And uh, a lot of people aren't or they don't want to be, or sometimes they even want to argue that the power imbalance is with the marginalized person. Uh, and that these people that will say that systemic racism is not a thing, for example, you know. Yeah, I think that may be, that may be the thing to, to do. Maybe that's the way to couch it, that, okay, even though you, you may be like this with everyone, recognize the, the, the black person or the, the sensitivity of being a marginalized community. Of course, sometimes the backlash you get from that is that people look at that as you basically saying that you are somehow weaker than than other people. Because I think sometimes people perceive, um, you know, some of our sensitivity as they see it as a weakness in us, uh, rather than a an actual consequence of social dynamics. And it is, it is, it is too narrative also to make it seem as weakness because then that also, um, opens up the white savior, um, thing where it's like, oh, you know, poor you, you had racism all your life. Right? Uh, which is also what we don't want. But maybe it's just, it's just to have the conversation, like the conversation that we're having now is the kind of conversation that would be great if, if it was had more regularly 
with people of color and white and others. But the, the thing is that we often don't get to this point because by this point, someone has already, you know, flipped out about how can you say that you, how can you be that sensitive or, you know, just see it. I see it as a respect for context. Yeah. It's not about weakness; it's about context, right? So it's about recognizing that there is a, a historical context for what is appropriate based on what this person experiences and the box that they are living in within our society, where they are placed, and why this is a crappy thing to do to them or to put them in that position. Yeah, it's about I mean, respect. It's yeah. not to me about weakness. Yeah, it's just I about mean, basic respect. Again, I mean, I agree, agree with you on that and on the, the whole thing of, of respect and contact. What I have found, and that may be a good time to get into to the whole idea of some of our happens, particularly in the secular community that we are well aware of, where some strange people, a lot of people don't like, consider that removing the historical context is actually what leads to more pure understanding of the phenomenon. So it's almost like everything is a snapshot of today. Like trying to bring in history or what happened before is somehow muddying the waters. So any interaction between two people, we just need to look at those two personalities. And it's Tracy and David. It's not anything else comes into it. And so we ignore that dynamic. And that's one of the amazing things to me that they, that so many people seem to be, to want to willfully take away context from these things. And of course, once you take the, the context away, then it becomes that once I do something to you and you do, like if, you know, uh, misgendering is okay for me, it's okay for you. And, you know, it's, and it has a real problem because a lot, it seems to me that, some fairly well-intentioned people are buying into this idea that context doesn't really matter, and I don't know. I don't know how you see that, and there and therefore are basically buying into a status quo is what we need to keep mentality, which essentially is makes them inadvertently racist, homophobic, transphobic, bigoted, misogynist, all the other things without even trying. For folks at home, this is where my conversation with David ended. If it seems abrupt, that's because it is. We hit a time limit on the conversation and had to end our call, but not before I got him to agree to come on again in the future to discuss a few more issues that we didn't get to this time around. So for now, we'll just say, till next time. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.